Would you join me one more time in turning to Luke chapter 10? We've been looking at this passage for uh, the past four weeks now under the theme sent. Uh, so we've been looking at that in connection with other churches in our classes uh, that are looking at what it means to be sent into the community. And this evening, uh, we're going to kind of culminate the whole um, month by having a combined worship service. It's going to be at Covenant CRC at 5 o'clock, and uh, we'll focus on the, the theme once again of sent, and we'll gather with those churches that have also been doing the, looking at the same passage and, um, and joining together in worship and, and also in communion. So let's jump right into the passage. We know it quite well by now. But let's look at Luke 10, verses 1 through 12 once again. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. And do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Conclude our reading at that point. Let's pray. Father God, as we come once again to this passage, remind us and instruct us of how we are sent into our community on your behalf. And then help us to take that to heart and give us willing hands and feet to be those who are sent and to minister the way you would have us minister for the extension of your kingdom. Amen. Every day, at exactly the same time, Margaret would go to the bathroom cabinet, open it, and take, a huge bo- take out a huge bottle of castor oil. Then she would head to the kitchen to get a tablespoon. At the sound of the drawer opening and the silverware rattling, Patches, her Yorkshire terrier, would run and hide, sometimes under the bed, other times in the bathtub or behind Margaret's recliner. Someone had convinced Margaret that Patches would have strong teeth, a beautiful coat, and a long life if she gave him a spoonful of castor oil every day. So as an act of love, every 24 hours, she cornered Patches, pinned him down, pried open his mouth, and poured a tablespoon of castor oil down his little doggy throat. Neither Patches nor Margaret enjoyed their daily wrestling match. Then one day, in the middle of their battle royal, with one sideways kick, Patches sent the dreaded bottle of castor oil flying across the kitchen floor. It was a momentary victory for the canine, 
as Margaret let him go so she could run to the pantry and grab a towel to clean up the mess. When Margaret got back, she was utterly shocked. There was Patches licking up the spilled castor oil with a look of satisfaction only a dog can make. Margaret began to laugh uncontrollably. In one moment, it all made sense. Patches liked castor oil. He just hated being pinned down and having it poured down his throat. Welcome to the world of evangelism. (laughs) That story is from Seismic Shifts by Kevin Harney. But perhaps this resonates with you when we talk about evangelism, as we've been doing this past month. Perhaps you've seen or heard about or maybe even participated in bad models of evangelism where it felt like you were pouring castor oil down someone's throat. And perhaps you're wondering, how do we get to a place where we can help people love the castor oil? To know, understand, and love God's word, to love the good news and love the Lord who offers it without that wrestling match. This past month, We've been participating, along with other churches and classes, Grand Rapids South, in, in dwelling in and focusing on Luke 10, 1 to 12. This was partially motivated by a study recently done that showed that virtually all of our churches have lost members over the past 10 years. But it was also done out of concern for Jesus' commandments and out of concern for our communities. Over the last three weeks, we've focused on being sent in three ways. We noted that we are sent by the King, the Lord of the harvest. Jesus appoints and equips uh, his disciples to minister on his behalf. In fact, even go ahead of him to visit, to go to cities that he hasn't even been yet, to herald the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom of God has arrived. Which means that they were also sent for the kingdom of God as representatives of the king. We mentioned that the kingdom of God is his rule, his power, and his people. His rule, the kingdom of the world over which he reigns. His power, Jesus notes in in various parables that there is an active force, that the kingdom is growing and active like a mustard seed that grows into the largest plant in the garden. And his people. His people are defined as those who accept God's rule over them. And we now are called into that mix to welcome others to be part of that kingdom as well, to accept God's kingdom rule over themselves, or maybe just to say we, accept, we invite them to be part of God's family. And then finally we're sent in the harvest field, starting locally, our own community, and broadening to the ends of the earth. And we noted that there's a sense of urgency with that image of harvest. Jesus says the fields are white, they're ripe for the harvest in our community. The time is short for our community. Well, now we look at one more phrase, sent with. How might this make a difference in our approach to evangelism, in our approach to our community? Note that we are sent with Three individuals or groups of people. First and foremost, we are sent with the Holy Spirit. Granted, we're making an assumption here. This passage doesn't actually 
say anything about the Holy Spirit in these verses. But given the fact that we're sent by the king for his kingdom, we claim the promises of Jesus throughout the New Testament about the Spirit's presence in mission. What does that do for us, if we, that we are sent with the Holy Spirit? Well, first, the Holy Spirit makes up for what we lack. The Holy Spirit makes up for what we lack. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit through a number of different Scripture passages as our partner in life and mission, teaching us and guiding us in all truth, speaking through us, empowering the mission for healing and proclamation, and ultimately, he's the one who's responsible for giving new birth. And that's encouraging, that the Holy Spirit's behind and ahead of and all through this entire process, especially given Jesus' commands here. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. Now, that lambs among wolves thing, we, we get that instinctually. That's, that's not hard to figure out what that means. But what about that last section? Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. Apparently, uh, rabbinical ordinances, especially in the first century, included a priest not taking a staff or wearing shoes or taking a money purse tied to him when he went into the, onto the temple mound and into the temple precincts. This was not to be a place for business. This was not to be a place for pleasure. His time there on the Temple Mount was to be for sacred purposes only. Some speculate that that might be behind this command, where Jesus instructed his disciples not to take money purses or staffs or extra baggage in their service as the new temple. But I think mostly, it's just a call to have balance. Have a balance between vulnerability and trust. We are to come with vulnerability among the people of our community, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to make up for what we lack. But the second thing the Holy Spirit does is he empowers us. Jesus, when he commissioned his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8, right before his ascension into heaven, said, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now this commission, as we've noted a couple of other times in this series, gives us kind of a pattern for our mission. We we start with those in closest proximity, including your own children and family, our Jerusalems, and then to the community around you with whom you may have some connections, your Judea but also to areas and people you might often ignore, your Samaria, and then the people very different and highly suspect, the ends of the earth, Gentiles. We've spent a lot of time on that. But we must not forget the first part of this commissioning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Ultimately, Jesus promises power to those who are sent. The Holy Spirit would and did come to empower the church, and 3,000 were added to their number that very first day, and many more added uh, 
in subsequent days by the strength of the Spirit, and he continues to do that. He's never stopped. He continues to be our mission partner, making up for what we lack, but also empowering and guiding us, speaking through us. But as we see in the story uh, in Acts 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see that the Spirit also prepares people's hearts ahead of time, and he uses us as his instruments. Think about that story. I've always been struck by that story. Philip was actually doing what Jesus commanded. He was actually literally in Samaria. So he had gone beyond Jerusalem and Judea. He was in Samaria, and there was this great evangelistic crusade going on there, and he was leading all kinds of people to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit whisks him away to a deserted road, hooks him up with an Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, and, and quite basically, Philip becomes a pawn as the Holy Spirit uses him to bring this Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And the Holy Spirit continues to work that way. He continues to prepare hearts ahead of time. And he wants to use us as his instruments. Are we aware of the Spirit's presence? Are we listening to his guidance? Are we looking for where he's working and joining him in his work? Are we being available to him like Philip was? So first, we're sent with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we're sent with kingdom partners. Jesus sends us with kingdom partners as he sent his disciples in this story two by two. This served a number of purposes. In the Old Testament, God told the people of Israel that legal witness or evidence demanded two witnesses. So that theme continues throughout the Bible of two witnesses, and and that may be part of the purpose here. But it also sets up a structure of accountability and support where partners can keep each other on task, can keep each other on message, can bolster one another when there's rejection, as Jesus promised there would be. But having kingdom partners also notes that being sent, evangelism, is a relational process. It's a relational process. It's all about relationships. No one person has all the gifts or knowledge to evangelize on his or her own. We're meant to do it communally. In addition to the Holy Spirit, we need each other. Because God created us with varying personalities and passions and spiritual gifts, and and some personalities just reach certain people better than others. Evangelism is relational. And various personalities just mesh together better than others. We're all gifted differently. And so we need others' gifts to shore up where we're weak. And maybe they'll utilize our strengths to shore up where they're weak. We need others who can answer questions we cannot. And maybe we can be used to answer questions others cannot. And the pool from which to draw the kingdom partners is the church. Now Paul talks a bit about this in his, to the church in Corinth. And in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul focuses on it in two ways. First of all, he says the church is a body. The church is a body. All the members, all the body parts are important and have their own function. 
And secondly, Christians have been given varying spiritual gifts for the common good of the church. Your spiritual gift's not for you. It's for the common good of the church. And we're to rely on each other, knowing that none of us has all the gifts. Kingdom mission is first and foremost church mission, writes Scott McKnight in his book, Kingdom Conspiracy. Kingdom mission is first and foremost church mission. It's more glamorous to do social activism because building local church is hard. But local church is what Jesus came to build, so the local church's mission shapes kingdom mission, end quote. He gives the example of Lawndale Community Church in Chicago. He says, The Spirit's new creation life in the church leads LCC folks to love on their neighbors and listen to their neighbors well enough to create ministries that meet their needs. Lawndale is a church that establishes care for one another, that transforming love spills out into caring for the community. They aspire to be the church in Lawndale. He says, two features of evangelism therefore need special focus. The church itself as a witness to the gospel and individuals dwelling in loving, credible ways with their neighbors. The church is to be a beacon on a hill, if you will. But it's not just to stand out there and hope that others come into the doors. The church is also to be people who spill out into the community with the kingdom of God. How are we doing as, at being the church in Cutlerville? The church in southern Grand Rapids? Being sent is not a project or committee. It flows out of being the church. McKnight writes, Kingdom mission takes root in the church and spills over into the public because of the moral fellowship and vision created by King Jesus. Do you know what he said? Kingdom mission is simply part of what it means to be the church. So it starts in the church, it takes root in the church, and it spills over. What we do here should just spill over into our community. So how are we sent? Well, we also realize that we are not only sent with the Holy Spirit and sent with kingdom partners, but we are also sent to be with people in our community. Sent to be with people in our community. McKnight adds, kingdom mission today only works when tied to our context, that is our community, as we seek to live out Jesus' kingdom vision in the world. To be sure, a biblical approach to kingdom mission listens first and foremost to Scripture in order to be formed by the gospel story, But once formed, the kingdom citizen explores what kingdom means in our world in specific locations. Or to put it in simpler terms, perhaps, it's great to sit here and be fed and to try to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there. That then should spill over into exploring what that means and how that looks as the kingdom extends out into our community. And so that means living with our neighbor and loving our neighbor. How do we do this? Well, Jesus has some interesting comments. He talks about the need to enter into the community. I think he uses that word enter three times. And not just for a brief visit. He says, stay there 
eating and drinking, and settle in. Don't move around from house to house. In fact, other than bringing peace, healing, and the kingdom message, everything else those disciples were to do is all about receiving, not giving. And you know, when you receive something from someone, if you allow someone else to help you, you allow someone else to give to you, that even strengthens your connection. They are to receive hospitality of food and lodging without taking anything extra along for the journey. He's talking about being or becoming part of the community. Tim Dickow, in his book, Plunging into the Kingdom Way, writes, if you work in one place, shop in another, play in a third, and go to church in a fourth, life becomes more fragmented. When you're part of a community that inhabits a neighborhood with a vision to be involved in transformation, life itself becomes more integrated and whole. While this is certainly the ideal, we realize we are much more disjointed in our culture today. We drive in from different places, making it hard to identify a single community for our church. We certainly should focus on those around the church facility. That's part of our neighbors. But we should also love our neighbors where we live and work, and play, and go to school. As McKnight says, when the church is the church, it's fully engaged in loving everyone as neighbors. Notice he said, not loving your neighbors where they live, it's loving everyone as neighbors. We'll see next week in the Good Samaritan parable, neighbor isn't always defined by proximity. The Samaritan was from Samaria, but when he ministered to the man in the parable, he was in Judea had nothing to do with actually being his neighbor. It means being good neighbors. Being good neighbors to others as we encounter them, where we encounter them. What might that look like? I ran across an interesting story about Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace and other novels. Leo Tolstoy once encountered a beggar and searched for coins in his pockets, not finding any. He said, please don't be angry with me, brother. I have nothing with me. If I did, I'd gladly give it to you. The beggar's face lit up. You've given me more than I asked for. You've called me brother. How are we living with the neighbors around us? How, what is our attitude toward them? How are we doing at being good neighbors with those with whom we come into contact, whether in the neighborhood around the church or wherever our paths take us. You may have noticed I like to quote a guy by the name of Frederick Buechner, who maybe some of you have never heard of. Frederick Buechner is kind of a renegade pastor. He came to the pastorate kind of being pushed and shoved into it. He's also a great writer, and I love his take on biblical stories. But Frederick Buechner came kind of as a renegade, came from a a very different background than most pastors do. And he had an interesting thing to say in one of his writings. He said, what I had always hoped was that since I come 
so much from the same kind of world as those people who don't touch Christianity with a 10-foot pole come from, maybe I could be a bridge. One of their own who had gone to the other side saying things in a language they could understand. Now, we may not be outsiders to Christianity in the same way, but how might we be insiders in our community, speaking the same language, serving as a bridge for people to come to Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you are willing to send us. We know you could do things much better than us without ever using human instruments, but you chose to use us, and we thank you for that privilege. Now we pray that we might accept that calling to be apostles, to be sent ones, to extend the love in the kingdom of Jesus Christ to our neighbors. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in singing together the servant song? It's from Lift Up Your Hearts, number 309. We're going to sing the five stanzas, five stanzas of the servant song. Let's stand to sing. Mm-hmm.